morning once again, saints. Open up your Bibles if you're not already there to Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 32. We're going to look at that passage more closely this morning. What a genuine treat it is to be in church together, isn't it? There really is nothing like corporate worship to lift up your spirit, to recalibrate your heart and your affections, to place your hope back in Jesus Christ after a long week. You know, there's just something about hearing you all sing behind me that reminds me of the gospel. It just wrecked me up front here. I'm glad I had a couple of minutes to gain some composure. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, we thank you that indeed your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you for your spirit that is here at work, even now in our midst, in the hearts and lives of each and every one of us, doing what only your spirit can do, working a miracle, whereby we know ourselves to be sinners, and we come to trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So by your spirit, convict us of sin, strengthen us in goodness. And we pray all of this for the glory of the good name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 9, verses 32 to 43, the end of the chapter. Friends, what we have here are two parallel accounts that are going to unfold before our eyes. You heard it as Claudine read it. The first one is about a man named, sorry, Aeneas, that's right. And the second one is about a disciple named Tabitha. Thank you for choosing that name. The other name's sort of awkward, Dorcas, I don't know. These are two different people who were touched by the early ministry of Peter. Actually, more accurately, these are two people who were touched by the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through the church through a guy named Peter, if you know what I mean. Far too often, we as Christians read our New Testaments and we read the gospel accounts as though that's the life of Jesus. Then Jesus dies, buries, resurrected, he ascends, and then the church just kind of happens, right? As though Christians just pick up where Jesus left off. But in fact, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author of Luke is also the author of Acts. And he saw that everything that happened in the account of Acts was the ongoing ministry of the risen, resurrected Jesus Christ. So that's what we have here. We're told that Aeneas is a man. We're told that Tabitha is a disciple. They're different. They're different because one's a man and one's a woman. They're different people in different towns. We have Aeneas in Lydda. We have Tabitha in Joppa. But the result is the same. Look at verse 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they, what does it say? Turn to the Lord. Look at what happens in verse 42. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. In one sense, 
the healing of these two different people in different towns was for their comfort. But in a deeper sense, there was something more important going on. Look back one verse at verse 31. Trying to give us a bit of an insight into what's happening here in this passage. Verse 31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. It was being built up. It was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. That's what we're witnessing happening here. In a little town called Lydda and in a little town called Joppa. And this is precisely how it happens. This is how the church multiplies. This is how the gospel spread back then. This is how the gospel still spreads today. Peace. Comfort. Now remember that this earliest church where these truths are said about it in verse 31, um, it enjoyed peace and comfort of the Holy Spirit. The church was not playing a home game back then. In fact, the earliest church was faced with persecution, the likes of which we can hardly imagine. And yet they experienced and were marked by peace and comfort. This peace, if we read that verse closely, results in the strengthening and the edification, or maybe in your translation, the building up of the church. The Greek word here, it's a, it's a participle, and it implies a direct causation. Peace that leads to building up. Peace that results in edification and strengthening of the church. So we see that in the earliest church and throughout time, Christians and churches are notable for their peace. In times like these, we don't want to move too quickly off that point, do we? We live in a world that is in desperate need of a good measure of peace. If you watch the news, if you read the newspapers, if you just talk to friends, families, colleagues, we're living in a time that is marked by a dearth of peace. Everyone's anxious. Everyone's fearful. It feels like we move from one subject of fear to the next every five minutes, posting new, like, virtue-signaling things on our social media um, and afraid of everything. And yet the church ought to be a bastion of peace, a place of comfort. You know, it struck me over the course of those couple of years of COVID restrictions how quickly and readily a virus could rob even Christians of their peace. Did you notice that? It was as though somehow we as Christians had forgotten Hebrews 4, where the writer to the Hebrews said, that Jesus, by his death, has delivered us from the slavery of the fear of lifelong death. Did we somehow forget that? Far too many Christians looked just like the world around them, lacking peace and comfort. 
Or what about in the world today where everything is polarized and torn apart and people are at each other's throats? I praise God that here at St. George's, we have a church that's marked by peace and comfort. We have people who disagree on secondary tertiary matters and still love one another. The church multiplies, it is strengthened, it is edified because it's rooted in peace and comfort. It's the work of the Spirit we see in verse 31. No other way for it to happen. So how does that work? Where does that kind of peace come from for Christians? Well, if you look at verse 31, it's clear. We're told that this earliest church had an attitude that fears the Lord. Now that seems counterintuitive to many, doesn't it? You wouldn't think of fear as leading to peace and comfort, and yet it is the consistent witness of all of Scripture that God's people have a posture of reverential fear before the Lord, and in so doing, they find comfort in him. It's not an either or. It's both and. So this earliest church, they were marked by peace, they were marked by comfort, they were built up, they were edified, they multiplied. Because they feared the Lord. They didn't fear anyone else. And in coming to the Lord with reverential fear, they found that he was good. That he was a God that was for them and not against them in Jesus Christ. See, that's where true peace and abiding comfort is found. This church that we encounter here in this chapter in Acts is a healthy church. It's a biblically normal church. I pray to God that we continue to grow in being that kind of church. One that's being strengthened. One that lives in the fear of the Lord. One that receives comfort that the Spirit alone can supply. Friends, it's these countercultural ingredients that cause the church to multiply in the face of persecution, to grow and be edified and strengthened even in the face of rejection. So what we see here is the ongoing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in and through his church. Okay, that's what we're going to read about here in Acts chapter 9. But we can't even get at this passage without first acknowledging something important. You see, this chapter and all of Acts presumes something that we need to keep reminding ourselves of, not only to read the passage properly, but to live Christian lives, and it's this. Jesus is alive. You can't read the account in Acts without first acknowledging that important fact. Jesus is alive, and he's at work in you and through you. You see, this is the ongoing ministry of the resurrected, ascended Jesus Christ in and through Christians, in and through the church. 
saving, healing, calling out his own. You see, Acts and all of human history, when viewed through this lens, recognizes that there are many sheep that are not yet of Jesus' fold. And it's through the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ through the church that those whom the Father set his affection on from before the foundation of the earth are called out and brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus is alive. All right, with that in mind, let's get at it. Verse 32 to 34. Here we have the healing of Aeneas. So we've been motoring along through Acts. We've followed the ministry of Philip. The Ethiopian eunuch gets saved and baptized. Philip goes to Samaria in fulfillment of the Great Commission. The gospel is going out. Just a couple weeks ago, we saw the remarkable conversion of Saul of Tarsus, taking him from the church's greatest persecutor to the man who would be the, the, the apostle to the Gentiles. In one sense, if you are here this morning, you are a Gentile, you're not a Jew, and you're a Christian, it's because of Saul's conversion and call, calling. Now we pick up the ministry of Jesus Christ through Peter, verse 32. So Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. So if you uh, want to look at your Bible map, you can, or you can just take my word for it. Lydda is the ancient city that's now called Lod. It's roughly 35 kilometers northwest of Jerusalem. If you can picture where Tel Aviv is, it's sort of over in that area. And we're told that there are saints there already. Verse 33. Peter encounters this man named Aeneas. Now we're unclear on many of the details about Aeneas' life. We assume that he's a Christian, just given the context. But we know one thing about him for sure, and what is that? He's paralyzed. We're told that he's been bedridden for eight years in verse 33. There are not many formalities of their interaction captured in Scripture. We're just told that Peter looks at him and with boldness and confidence says, verse 34, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Nobody had to convince Peter that Jesus was alive. Peter's entire ministry was driven by this impetus, by this deep truth that Jesus remains in the grave no longer. That he is seated at the right hand of authority. That he has sent the Holy Spirit. Jesus is alive. That's why Peter can go with boldness. Now this Jesus who is alive, Peter is bold and says to Aeneas, Jesus heals you because Peter remembers back in John 9 when Jesus was physically walking the earth in bodily form and he encountered a blind man. Do you know that account? 
And Jesus is about to heal the blind man and some of the religious types, some of the guys who, with the best of intent, actually kept people away from God, they went up to Jesus and they said, hey, here's this guy who was blind from birth. Why is he blind? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? You remember this account? This is the same Jesus who's alive now. And what did Jesus say to them back then in John 9? He said it wasn't his sin, it wasn't his parents' sin. He's like, you guys don't get it. It was so that the mighty works of God could be seen that this man is blind. And so Jesus takes some spittle and some mud and he rubs it on the man's eyes and he heals him. His sight is restored. Similarly, when we come to Aeneas, we might be wondering the same thing. We're not told how he was paralyzed. Perhaps it was by accident. Maybe it was through disease. We don't know. Maybe you're reading the account of Aeneas and you think, well, whose sin was it? Right? Was it his? Was it his parents? Was it someone else's? And you know, to bring a biblical theology to bear on day-to-day life in the world would suggest that in a deep, deep, deep way, all injury, all illness, everything is as the result of sin, in a deep sense. Your sin, someone else's sin against you, original sin that now causes the curse of sin to plague our earth with things like disease and death. So in one sense, it's all because of sin. But it's not the point. Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. And I would suggest to you that it's for the same reason as John 9. So that the mighty works of God can be seen. Peter then in the next breath says two things. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. Then what does he say? Rise. Make your bed. Verse 34, and so immediately he rose. You know, friends, there are a couple of things I want to note from this. The first one is that Jesus still heals. I was just told recently about a woman, a young woman, well, young depending on your perspective, (laughs) You know, she's about my age. And she was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer. Positive diagnosis. She was about to undergo treatment. The church and many Christians went to prayer. She had a scan this past week, and they didn't see any cancer. Praise God. Jesus heals. But he doesn't heal all the time. It was 13 years ago that my late wife was diagnosed with a brain tumor and the church went to prayer and she died. Well, the fact of the matter is that as Christian men and women, we believe that 
every single person that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ will be healed. For some, it's on this side of glory. And for others, it's on the last day when they will be raised healthy, whole, strong, and every teardrop wiped away. Jesus Christ still heals. Second thing to say, the public display of the works of God here in Acts 9 account of Aeneas, it certainly happened so that the people of the town of Lydda would see it, and we see the effect of that. But it's recorded in the book of Acts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for our learning. You ever think about that when you're reading the Bible? Why did God the Holy Spirit choose to include this account? For me, thousands of years later, what is it that I'm supposed to learn? Well, I think that there is a deeper truth that God wants us to draw from this. An allegorical truth. Do you know what allegory is? It's when something happens and it's a picture of something that's deeper. Look, the fact of the matter is that each and every one of us is allegorically paralyzed and bedridden. We may be going about our day-to-day -day life, making breakfast, packing lunch, cutting up cucumbers and celery, you know, jumping on the go train, putting in a good day's work, coming home, taking the kids to soccer and hockey, going to bed, lather, rinse, repeat, Groundhog Day, do it again. But in fact, spiritually, allegorically, we are all just like Aeneas. We are spiritual invalids. Apart from the saving work of God in Jesus Christ, we are paralyzed by our sin. We need a Savior. We need a Savior with the authority to bring us back to our feet. And so this account was written for the people of Lydda, but it's also written for us so that we would see the ongoing work of the risen Jesus by the power of the Spirit and see that his power takes spiritually paralyzed in sin men and women and causes them to rise and make their beds. Are you with me so far in this allegory? Now, when I was reading this this week and studying and preparing, it actually struck me as pretty humorous because I think St. Peter in this account would have been like highly approved by the OG uh, Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is always telling people to get up and make their beds, right? And so Peter says to Aeneas, rise up and make your bed. But when we look at this from an allegorical perspective, I really want to drill into this. Rise and make your bed is the allegorical picture of being saved and sanctified. 
Now, friends, we're going to wade into some deep theological waters here. And if I get too abstract, I don't know, wave your hand or something, and I'll try to bring it down. This stuff really, really matters for the Christian life. Saved and sanctified. Rise up and make your bed. Hands up if you've ever heard the name Augustus Top Lady. Got to be one or two. Yeah, well done, well done. Augustus Toplady was an Anglican minister. He was a Church of England pastor in the middle, late 18th century, so 1700s. Back when Augustus Toplady was the curate, he was the associate pastor at a church, he undertook a little road trip. Okay, now this was back when road trips were far more perilous than they are today. People actually died on road trips, right, in storms and all kinds of things. And so Augustus Toplady, the story goes, he was um, in his carriage, he was on a, a road trip, and a massive storm blew up, a storm that actually threatened his life. And so he got off of his carriage, and he found a small little cave on the side of a, of a hill on a rock, just a little cleft in a rock, and he tucked himself in there and hid himself in there until the storm passed. While he was hiding in that rock, so the legend goes, he got out a piece of paper and a writing instrument, and he wrote the lyrics to a song that we sing called Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Now, of course, it's a reference to Deuteronomy where the holy glory of God was about to pass by. And Moses, if he had not been protected or shielded, because Moses was sinful like all of us, in the presence of a holy God, he would have been struck dead. And so the Lord God tucked him away in the cleft of a rock. Well, as Christians, we read that account and we know that the cleft in the rock is none other than... Say it out loud. Jesus, he hides us in the cleft of the rock, and so we can endure being in the presence of a holy God. So Augustus Toplady writes this song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And in one of the verses, he uses this turn of phrase that I just love. He says of Jesus, be for sin the double cure. Cleanse from sin and make me pure. See, friends, that's to be saved and sanctified. Jesus is the double cure. That is to rise and to make your bed. The first action that we see is this action of saving, rise up. Jesus is the cleft in the rock that hides us from the wrath of God because he paid the debt that our sin demanded. We are forgiven. Peter says to Aeneas, rise. New life, new creation in Christ, rise. Jesus is the double cure because he not only removes our guilt and our sin, 
But then he works in us to change us, to sanctify us, make your bed. I hope that wasn't too abstract. Let me make it really clear. Friends, in this we see that God loves you and rescues you from your sin. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Rise up. And we also see that God in Jesus loves us too much to leave us in our sin forever. And so he empowers us by the Holy Spirit to be sanctified, to grow to be more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world around us. Aeneas rises and makes his bed. Think about that. He's been bedridden for eight long years. Man, if I get the sniffles and I'm in bed for an afternoon, I'm feeling really hard done by. Eight years. He rises. He's instructed to make his bed because he's not going to need it any longer. Now this bed, it is the physical representation of the habit of his inability to walk. And it's no longer needed. There's two things for you to consider in this healing of Aeneas. The first one is, have you ever been saved? Have you ever heard the words spoken to you in the power of the Holy Spirit to rise up? Look, maybe the Holy Spirit is stirring you right now, causing you to know that you are spiritually paralyzed and unable to move. You need a Savior. Put your hope on Jesus Christ and be saved. Rise up and make your bed. Okay. Now the fact of the matter is we as Christians are all varying degrees of spiritually paralyzed and we all are sanctified at different rates so we have to be gracious and loving with one another. You may look at this and say, R.D., I am a Christian man or woman but I still sin. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you didn't have to tell us that. We know that from our personal experience as Christians and also from the clear witness of Scripture. Christians go on sinning until glory when we are set free to sin no more. You go on to sin in this process of making your bed and being sanctified Because if you could stop sinning, if sanctification means you get saved, then you could just stop sinning by your own sheer determination and discipline, um, then you wouldn't need a savior. There'd be no gospel in that. That's not the Christian message. You can do it on your own. So yeah, you go on sinning. The third thing that I'd say to you if you say, RD, I'm a Christian, but I go on sinning, is that 
the very fact of the matter that you feel convicted about that sin is the evidence that you belong to Jesus Christ and you're a new creation in him. Back before you were saved, you never gave a thought to the sin in your life. And so now, when you sin, the Holy Spirit convicts you so that you'll return to Christ, cherish him ever more deeply as your Savior, and that's an evidence that should encourage you that you belong to him. Another thing I want to say about sanctification. Sanctification is a process. It's a work of the Spirit. You will be progressing in your spiritual walk with the Lord. You'll be seeing godliness grow and sin fall away, the old man dying, the flesh being put to death, the spirit alive, and then you'll fail. But then you'll get back on track by the power of the spirit, and you'll keep tracking and tracking and fail. And the thing is, if you ever take too narrow a slice in your look at your life and your sanctification, you'll always be discouraged. But if you look at the last six months, if you look at the last year, if you look at the last five years, you're growing in godliness. You're making your bed. You're being sanctified day by day. I hope you're encouraged with that. Friends, Jesus is alive. Aeneas is healed, he's risen up, and he makes his bed. You are saved, and you are being sanctified. That's the account of Aeneas being healed. One final thing to note in this account, look at verse 35. It says, and all the residents saw him and they turned to the Lord. I was reading that this week and I thought, really? All the residents? I mean, how many times have I glossed over that? Scripture says that so profound and so real was this healing of this man named Aeneas who was bedridden for eight years that all the residents heard and they all turned to the Lord. What a mighty move of God. Look, friends, God has placed us as St. George's here in Northeast Burlington. What are we believing God for for our city? Population of roughly 300,000. Do we have faith to believe for 1%? Not that they would all come here, that they'd all be saved and find Bible-believing churches in the city. 1%? 30,000? No, 1% is 3,000. 10%? 30,000? Well, look what God did here in Lydda. I hope that that's a source of encouragement to you to pray that all of Burlington would hear of the mighty works of God and be saved. Well, we're told that they all turned to the Lord. And the literal Greek word here is that they turned around. This reminds us that a conversion, being born again, is more than just changing our mind. It results in an about face. It's a completely opposite commitment and conviction from before you were saved. They all turned to the Lord. Okay, that's Aeneas. Let's look at Tabitha more quickly. Uh, you see the account of Tabitha in these verses, and you can't help but remember the rising of Lazarus in John 11. So we're told that Peter is back in Lydda, and Lydda is 15 kilometers from Joppa. 
They send for him just like they sent for Jesus in John 11. We're told in this account that tragedy has struck the church in Joppa while Peter is in Lydda. This dear saint has died. Tabitha. Now in verse 36, we're told that her name Tabitha translates in Greek to Dorcas, but that probably didn't help any of you because you don't know Greek. In both Aramaic and in Greek, Tabitha and Dorcas means gazelle. Gazelle. Even more so. It was a common turn of phrase, actually, a term of endearment to call someone that you loved or someone that was lovely to call them a gazelle. Back in Song of Songs, you'll see it often. And so Tabitha is by name someone who is deeply cherished in that local church in Joppa. Not only by name, but also by reputation. Look at the rest of verse 36. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Also note that she is referred to as a disciple. Did you know that in all of Acts, Tabitha is the only woman referred to as a disciple? What we have here is the passing of a well-loved saint in the church of Joppa. Now, I want to encourage you this morning. This is the only place in Scripture that we hear about Tabitha. She neither preached in the church in Joppa. She neither led the church of Joppa. She was a behind-the-scenes kind of woman, kind of disciple. And yet her ministry to the church was so crucial that it endeared her to them all. Look at her name. Look at her reputation. And so I would suggest to you this morning that the role of women in our church is in no way diminished by following the biblical patterns of male elders. In fact, it would be an anemic church without the Tabithas. Tabitha, Dorcas, Gazelle. Full of good works and acts of charity. Look, I run the risk anytime I do a list like this, I'm going to miss someone, but Tabitha was an Angela. She was a Donna. She was a Barb. She was a Deb. She joyfully served her church in quiet ways that not many people would have ever seen or known. She cared for the widows. So much so, look at verse 39, we're told that it was the widows who gathered around her body when Peter showed up and put on display these tangible evidence of Tabitha's love for them. He sh they were weeping and mourning and showing Peter the very tunics that Tabitha had made for them. 
So Tabitha has fallen asleep. She's died. They've sent for Peter. Peter arrives. They take him up to the upper room where Tabitha's body is lying in state. They're preparing it for burial. And there's a commotion in the room. So Peter sends them all out. He then kneels down and prays. Then he turns to the body, verse 40. And he says, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Verse 41. In this act of tenderness and kindness, but also as a triumphal display, Peter takes her by the hand and shows her to all the widows and the people who are gathered. It isn't that she needed help staying to her feet. The, the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ has come upon her and raised her from death to life. She's strong enough to walk. Peter's saying, hey everyone, have a look at what the Lord has done. So friends, in the healing of Aeneas, we saw that we are all paralyzed and bedridden in sin, but in the account of Tabitha, we see that it's actually far worse. We are all dead in our trespasses and sin. And it's only the Lord Jesus Christ who has the power to raise the dead. Again, the result in verse 42 and verse 35, verse 42 says, and it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Aeneas is healed. Tabitha is raised, not only for their comfort, but so that the mighty works of God in Jesus would be known, and many would be saved. Both Aeneas and Tabitha are foretastes of heaven. That day when everyone who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ John 6 says, every single person that the Father has given me, I will not lose them, but I will raise them up on the last day. Every single one of us, raised from death, forever healed from all that plagues us, we will be free to sin no more. And so, friend, when you behold Aeneas and Tabitha in Acts chapter 9, I want you to see that God in Jesus, saves you. He raises you from the paralysis of sin and death. I want you to see that God, in Jesus, sanctifies you. He is invested in a process in making you more and more like him and less and less like the world around you. He's sanctifying you. And it's all because Jesus is alive. And that's how the church multiplies with peace, strengthened and encouraged in the fear of the Lord. This point really came home for me yesterday. I officiated at the wedding ceremony for Andrew and Andrea. It's a great day. And as they were standing right here and I was preaching the sermon, I was taken back to the very first moment that I ever met Andrew. Because Andrew came to church on the Sunday that nobody comes to church. The Sunday right after Christmas. 
And shortly thereafter, we met, and he shared with me about his journey and his struggles and how he needed his life to get turned around. Well, it was very shortly after that that the Holy Spirit came upon Andrew and caused him to repent, convicted him of his sin, granted him faith to believe in Jesus, and Andrew was born again. His life completely turned around. He then started bringing his girlfriend to church. And so it happened with Andrea. She got saved. She was born again. She was healed at like Aeneas and raised to walk. She was raised to new life like Tabitha. And then we're standing here and I'm looking at this couple at this moment, honoring each other and honoring God in marriage, new creations in Christ. And I, I got so really emotional. I thought, it's only an alive Jesus that can do that. And friend, it's only an alive Jesus that can do that for you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for your word. We thank you that you have not abandoned us as orphans, but you have sent your Holy Spirit for the ongoing work of the risen, resurrected, alive Jesus. Lord, I pray for every person here this morning that does not know if they are saved. Would you, by your Spirit, convict them of their sin, don't leave them in despair. Give them eyes to behold Jesus, to love him and to trust him and to be born again. Friend, if that's you this morning, Romans 10 says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Lord, I pray also for every Christian man and woman here who is on this lifelong journey of making their bed, being sanctified. God, I pray that you would deliver us from turning that into a work that we have to do. I pray especially for those who are feeling the accusation and the condemnation of Satan. That their hope and their assurance would be in Christ. It is true, I am a sinner, but I have a greater Savior. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in all of this in Jesus' name.